What's good, family? Welcome back to another episode of Reimagining Youth Work. Today's discussion is with Stevie, Dr. View Johnson. You're going to find out more about him as the episode starts. He's a DJ, a producer, an educator, a community organizer. The reason I really wanted to interview DJ View, Dr. View, is because, first of all, he did some really groundbreaking work as a PhD student. He wrote a hip-hop dissertation, uh, complete with a hip-hop album, which was amazing, innovative, groundbreaking, really laid the work, um, the foundation or some foundation for some folks coming after him in terms of what academics could look like. But the other reasons I wanted to talk to him, and you'll learn this in the episode, are about his own experiences navigating higher education on both ends, both as a student and as a person who is responsible for helping students transition into higher ed. He was working at a university at the time that he was getting his dissertation done, and he was having these experiences with young people that he was trying to help navigate through that system, that there wasn't a connection. There was a disconnect between him and them. There was a disconnect between them and the institution that they were all that they all belong to and they used hip-hop they used music as this mediator as a dj he already had a love for hip-hop his young people had a love for hip-hop but they hadn't made that connection sort of under the auspices of this higher ed space and so he breaks that barrier by utilizing hip-hop and learns a lot of things but also creates a really amazing loving healing space for folks of color in higher ed particularly black males so this is an important episode to listen to for how we, uh, as, as, scholars and as scholars and practitioners, can utilize hip-hop and music to connect, but also how we, how we generate healing, how we create healing spaces where we are. The other element that's really important about this episode is Dr. View's newest drop, which is another album called Invisible Man. It actually just recently dropped, and I'm going to have links in the episode notes to make sure that y'all can get that stream that purchase that but there's a special discussion about invisible man as a work as a work in the classroom as an academic work but also how that translates into hip-hop and also how english educators can utilize his album uh, and other hip-hop to teach pieces like invisible man a lot of wisdom a lot of gems in this episode really looking forward to sharing it with you all Please listen as I ask you to always listen with an open mind and open heart and being prepared to get ready to apply some of these strategies and some of these gems to your own work as a youth worker. This is Tori Weaston Certain, and you're listening to Reimagining Youth Work. What's good, family? Welcome back to the Reimagining Youth Work podcast. Today, I have a very special guest, Stevie Dr. View Johnson. He is a DJ, a producer, an educator, a community organizer. He's from Longview, Texas, Texas in the house. Yeah, he's, got, yeah. <laughs> he's got close to 10 years of college student development experience. And Dr. View received his PhD in higher education administration from the University of Oklahoma in May of 2019, 
But what's interesting about that, and we're going to get into it, his entire PhD dissertation was a hip hop album entitled Curriculum of the Mind, a black crit narrative inquiry hip hop album on anti-blackness and freedom for black male collegians at historically white institutions. What's good, DJ Dr. View? What up? How you living? Man, just again, out here just trying to survive this coronavirus. <laughs> you you and you and me both. It's, right? it's, it's crazy out here. And you know, we the most susceptible. So, you know, we really got to stay in the house. I've been trying to tell people that, you know, we having a lot of misinformation happen right now. It's a it's a information war. Right. Exactly, and so exactly. I'm just hearing a lot of black folks like, you know, this is this is this is fake, you know, biological warfare. I'm like, OK, if it's biological warfare, stay in the house. You know, let's <laughs> let's have a conversation about this. Absolutely. Yeah. My mom went back to work uh, Friday. And uh, I was just letting, because she works for the post office, and I was just like, hey, just, I know you got to do what you got to do, yeah. but, like, be careful. Um, and it's just one of those things where, like, it's, it's really out of your control. And so you just hope for the best and and pray that, you know, she's in a space where, you know, she's not around, you know, that type of stuff. But it's just, it's very scary, very scary for sure. So. Yeah, absolutely. I'll keep your mom <laughs> in my prayers for sure. Appreciate that. For Appreciate sure. that. So I want to hear, definitely, I want to just start by talking about this dissertation because <laughs> um, you have truly paved the way in terms of reimagining what a, PhD, what a PhD program looks like for us. So please talk to us about your work, your dissertation. Yeah, it was, uh, it was difficult. It was hell. It was, it was four, four years of hell. Um, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. I'm going to be very blunt and honest. Uh, it was, uh, it was an uphill battle, but, uh, I think it was, I'm grateful because it allowed me to really like lean on, like how I really saw myself as a scholar. I think being in Oklahoma, um, and being like this, this DJ, as well as this educator, I was really wrestling between like my identities and like the politics of like what a hip-hop scholar or what a scholar is supposed to look like an administrator is supposed to look like how they're supposed to dress how they're supposed to talk and it was really wrestling with like my hip-hop sensibilities um and it came to a point where like my students i worked in student affairs um at the university of central oklahoma in the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. And my, my students would tell me all the time, uh, hey man, you're just boring. Like, we wanna know like who you are, bro. Like, cause I was literally, I was masking my, myself. Like when I got my job, my first higher ed job, I stopped DJing, I stopped, you know, just going out to certain spaces. Cause I would see DJing, my students. DJing, bro? Huh? You stopped DJing? I stopped DJing because like my students were coming to my, to my like, events and it was like this dynamic like man i don't know like literally in my interview there was a student interview and they said you're gonna these are our parties <laughs> so yes. it was one of those things like man i want people to take me serious like i'm not here just as a performer i'm here it's like i have some intellect and knowledge so i was you know just really cutting myself off and like really just not happy with life at that point 
And then my students were just like, man, you boring. Like, we want to know who you are. Like, you putting up this, this wall, like, like, let us in. And so when I started telling them about, you know, DJ and all those different things, they were just like, yo, that's dope. Like, how can you bring that into the classroom? And when I started doing that, I started noticing that they were more engaged um, and I was more apt to like being myself. So that, seeing that and, and working in retention initiatives, so I was focused primarily on the Black Male Initiative Program. Obviously with literature, they had the lowest retention graduation rates. So I was trying to figure out, you know, new strategies and ways to, to connect with them. And hip hop was one of those ways. And so I was like, man, I really want to dive into this PhD program, which I really didn't want to do. Um, my vice president of student affairs at the time, Dr. Myron Pope, who's actually at University of Alabama now, was like, uh, I want to pay for your PhD program. And I was like, I just, I took two years off from my master's and I, and I already told myself, I'm not going back. <laughs> like it's, I'm tired. Like it's, I'm ready, I'm ready to do something else. And when he said he'll pay for it, I was like, man, he sees something in me that I don't see in myself. My wife was like, don't be no fool. Um, so black She's women smart. always say to this, you know? <laughs> so, um, so I just took a chance and that was in 2015. Two years come down the pipeline. I'm in my office and I'm on Facebook. Probably shouldn't be on Facebook at the job, but I'm on Facebook. <laughs> and I see this press release of this cat named A.D. Carson. And he comes out with the 34 track rap album dissertation. And on the article, it has a number. I was like, man, they can't possibly put his number on here. So I just called a number and he picks up the phone and I have an open door policy. I kicked out all my students. Wow. And I'm like, I gotta get out. I gotta, I gotta figure this stuff out. Cause I had been contemplating like a hip hop album, but I was like, I don't know how that even fits. Like, so see his his joint. And I'm like, yo, like, this is the blueprint. It's like Jay-Z, this is the blueprint, man. Like, like what, how'd you do it? Like, how'd you get it passed? How'd you navigate the politics? Like I was, I had so many questions. And uh, he told me, and I, this is my second year in my program. And so I'm really diving into a lot of literature mm -hmm. that my program didn't necessarily like make privy to me. Like they were just, it was kind of like the, the methodological and theoretical, the, the positive, post-positive, post, post-whatever. Post like it was just, everything was post, post, post. And I was like, man, I'm trying to read some, some stuff that's going to edify me. And... You know, obviously black feminists and queer feminist theories and uh, black crit. I was looking at Marinage, like mm -hmm. stuff that conceptually, like higher just isn't built for. Right. And I just wanted it to be something to where like, I knew my dissertation, I knew for one that I was gonna have to write and create the album. Like that was like me not writing was not a thing. And so, I wanted to make sure that the album was accessible to the people who needed to hear and see it the most. We write this 200 plus book over four to six years, seven. Wow. And That's a only, only 100, maybe 10 people or 20 people read it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what about these people, black and brown folks who look like me, who look at higher education as like being successful, not knowing the 
the anti-black experiences or like just the day-to-day struggle it takes for students to get through school where they're working 20, 30 hours a week and financial aid is not covering everything. And they trying to figure out like how they gonna make ends meet. Some people back home are probably sick or they having to take care of family. And so it's just a lot of different things that people don't really think about when it comes to like students actually trying to get to a certain point. And I really wanted to explore that to make higher ed understand like we have to do better as as organizations. And so um talk to AD for like two hours on the clock. <laughs> like and I went to I took a half day the next day and went to University of Oklahoma, which my job is like an hour away. Went to Oklahoma, talked to my chair at the time, was like, yo, I'm doing this hip hop album. Like I'm excited. I'm like, I'm ready to go. And he wasn't with it. <laughs> I, I, I saw it coming. I saw it coming. Yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't with it. Um, to the point where it was like the more I think about it now, I don't think it was an issue of how dope it would be. I think it was a lot of times when people don't understand something, they automatically like negate it, right. like disregard it as something that's like, yo. I don't have time for, or I'm not willing to learn something new um, that ultimately is going to elevate so many different sectors of like higher ed research. Um, So resign is my chair. Told me, I was like, I should look at other programs. Wow. Other programs. Like literally gave me recommendations of like musicology um, programs, like, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was bad. It was real bad. Um, and so for six months, I didn't have a chair. I didn't have a committee. Um, just trying to navigate, figure out like what's my next step. And so 2017, one of my, my homies was in the program. She was like, yo, you going to AERA? I was like, what the hell is AERA? <laughs> and I was like, it sounded like another expensive <laughs> conference. <laughs> that I can't pay for. <laughs> and so she was like, well, it's the American Education Research Association. I was like, yeah, that's cute. She was like, um, but they have these this this hip hop SIG. I was yeah. like, what's the hip hop SIG? It's like the special interest group. And then she started naming these people that I had been reading. And it was in San Antonio, which is probably like seven and a half hours from Oklahoma City. Okay. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go down there. I'm gonna meet these people. If they phony and fake, I know what my answer is. Cause I was like, I'm done with the program at this point. Yeah. And uh, I go down there and I meet Bettina. Yeah. I actually met you because I think you had a book. I was out. gonna say, I feel like that's the year we met as well. That's the year that we met. That's crazy. Because so I feel like out. I took you to the booth and was like, let's yes. That absolutely. So you and Tina and Stovall, Emery, uh, Chris, uh, my Gloria Lassen Billings, like being in that SIG meeting and just being around like the people that I saw myself as. Like I didn't, I knew I wasn't going into the program as a tenure track professor uh, or as an administrator. I was like, man, I just want to, 
I want to have the flexibility to be in and out, like double dutch, like me being able to dictate when I when I want to move and when I don't. Right. Like when I look at myself as a scholar, it's about communal education. And for me, it's about like me and you on this on this podcast and we just we just breaking bread. We just talking about life and I'm listening to your story and I'm going to find ways moving on down the road to either support you or to make your day. That's about communal education, about relationship. Relationship is a new currency. Right. Um, and that's how I wanted to like, that's how I wanted people to see my research right. is that it's about people. It's not about the politics or how many journal articles or books or like none of that. It was like, man, who's doing the work? And even if my name isn't on, isn't attached to it, even though it should, like as long as the work is being done, like I'm not gonna trip. But you, um, you've been raising a lot of issues for me as you're telling your story. Like, so I heard respectability politics. I heard connections and relationships, not just you at ARA with other scholars, but the, the young folks that were on your campus that you were responsible for serving in your office that were like, dude, I'm not feeling you. Like, I, I don't mess with you like that because I'm not really seeing you. So and being receptive to that. Yes. Yeah, yeah being open. Like, like, truly listening, like, okay, like, why is that? And me not, like, being in my feelings because it's like they need something from me that I wasn't giving them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they easily could have not said anything and just let it, like, be what it is. But the fact that like they saw something similar to the vice president of student affairs, like the students saw something in me. It was like, yo, I got to get this out of this dude. So like, I, cause I know he can help me like get to a point where I'm trying to go. Right. And it's like, once the blinders were off, it was like, okay, I can see things different. The literature that I'm, I'm reading, I can connect it to these, these situations. And I've always been a mentor where like, I don't give the answer. I just ask very critical questions right. that allows them to be like, let me figure this out on my own or let me come back and have a conversation about something that I like, I let him let them read or like just something that we just talked about. Like, man, come back and let's, let's talk about it later. I know you're going to come with the, with the, with the right solution. Yeah. It's just, it's just about empowerment. So, so yeah, long story short, I go to ARA I love it. I ended up DJing at ARA, which was a whole nother story. <laughs> um, and that was the moment where I was like, you know, the the world of academia, like this idea of gatekeepers. Um, I think people take that word very literal. And it was like, man, I don't want to be a gatekeeper. I want to be a gate opener. Yes, um, I want to be somebody that just, when, when somebody says something, I'm like, I I want to help as, as, as much as I can. And I, I don't want to be the person that limits anybody from doing anything. Um, and so I figured out what I need to do for my program, found a chair, still finished in four years. Yes. Uh, and, and we, and we made it, we made it do what it do. So, I mean, it's, there's a lot of sacrifices, a lot of, even during that time, I, I went to counseling for the first time too. Um, because it's, I mean, one thing was like the, the person who, who did it was, was African-American male. And it was just like somebody that I was like, yo, I really aspire to, to be like as a scholar. 
And when that situation happened, it was like, yo, like, I'm not, I'm not my, my best self right now. I was, I was at my lowest point um, and, and really had to get some help. My, my wife recognized it and uh, went to counseling. And it was just so many different things that I was going through at the time. A lot of healing that I had to get through um, that I'm just grateful for. Like, I'm grateful for that experience because and if I didn't have it, then I wouldn't be able to navigate or be as vulnerable, which I, I, I see as a, as a strength and authentic and able to not only tell my story, but like provide a space and platform for other people who have felt disenfranchised and tell their stories too. So yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been a blessing. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So, I mean, like I said, you've been hitting on a lot of points. So I want to start just a little bit with the respectability politics, because you said something earlier on, you said that basically respectability politics were not jiving with your hip hop sensibilities. And I feel like so many of our young people are dealing with that same challenge, right? How can we, as folks that are working with young people, how can we open that space up, right? So, I mean, I know that everyone, you know, cause again, I'm working with teachers, mentors, et cetera. And they're like, but young people need to understand professional dress, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I see your face. Um, Talk to me about that. Like, how can we how can we bridge that gap between hip hop sensibilities, young folks, how they navigate and also this sort of gatekeeping on some level. Right. This this professionalism gatekeeping. Both both them, Jean, both them, Jean, Tatiana Jefferson. um, And others who had no criminal record, um, who were part of great families. Um, were killed by law enforcement um, and justice was not served. And so I say that because like I'm a PhD, I've reached the pinnacle of, of my success and yet I still am being viewed as just another, can I, can I cuss? Or is this a very, I want to make sure. <laughs> Go for it. I'm just viewed as another nigga and I think that's where I draw the line with like this idea of respectability politics. It's like, yeah, you can dress up like any, everybody likes being fresh at one point or another. Right. Like I get it. But as far as me feeling comfortable in this world, like I just like, I can't be in a position where I can't have a, a little ounce of freedom. Just a little. Right. And isn't that, <laughs> isn't that what we all work for? I mean, we tell young people work hard so you can have freedom. Exactly. And me wearing, you know, a fitted or a bow tie is not going to change the fact that, like, I'm still dealing with some issues of white supremacy and privilege and power. Um, and, and sometimes it, it provides this kind of space where you know people who are in position of power view certain attire is like oh this is the nice person like i can i can connect with and it's like you don't really understand my story my perspective so i think for students like one we just got to be honest with ourselves like students truly want to know how we messed up (laughs) we messed up and yet we are still here like 
I'm tired of like people seeing like position themselves like they're perfect or like like they're better than like somebody else. Right. Like, kids like students like can read through that like to a T. And it's like when they truly see that like you're talking like what you're saying, like then you you can connect with them in ways that most people can't. So I just think we gotta get past like the attire. Like there are certain spaces and times for, for you know for certain things, but overall, like the kids see so much in their lives that we gotta get to a point where like we meet them with their reality right. and what they see. Um and a lot of times me wearing a tie, a suit, it's already like messing up the relationship. Like, <laughs> like when they see me walk in with a suit and they like, oh, here comes this authoritative figure. Mm. But when I come with a with a hat like this and I'm covering up all this 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 roughness and they see the roughness in me, but I can still like talk to them in a way where it's like, I'm not above you, like I'm right next to you. Mm. I think somebody said something like there's a difference between kingdom builders and community builders. I don't see myself as a kingdom builder where it's like I'm building this this uh this Eiffel Tower where I can look down on people. Like I'm trying to make sure everybody finds their purpose. So it's community building. So I think once people start to recognize their teachers and administrators, like you just gotta you gotta let the flaws out and you gotta be okay with that. Like students will be more receptive to like engaging in conversations and solutions of things that need to be fixed if we're able to be honest with ourselves for real so the other thing and again this is all coming from your story but also just from my experiences in the youth work field so many people especially people serving black and brown folks go to college go to college go to college college is the promised land you know when you get there everything is going to come together and uh he said nope (laughs) um but my my issue um and it's complicated i mean we could talk about you know leo neoliberalism and neo you know all of those different issues associated with with higher education but also just that we make young people feel like once they get to college that's it like all the struggles are done right and then I feel like we haven't properly prepared them because of that, right? So we have these college access programs that are pushing black and brown kids to go to college and then they get there and then they have experiences like yours. Hmm. So so tell me, like, especially as a, as a person in administration, you know, again, tasked with supporting these folks, like what are some strategies? What are some things that we can do to support young people coming in and then also when they get there? So I think... Um from an administration standpoint, like higher ed, I was very frustrated that the focus was around what are our numbers? Like, what's the, like, are we, do we have more numbers than we did last year? Mm. And I was really conflicted because from a state perspective, they were cutting funding from higher education. So it's like you're asking for us to do more with less, which ultimately the person we are hurting the most are the students and the families because they're the ones who have to find more money to compensate for what 
the state and federal government should be doing right. for our students. Right. So it was really, I think for one, like people who are in positions of power need to address administration about these issues to say like, yo, what to reimagine what these spaces look like. Maybe we don't need to provide access, not necessarily access, but maybe we need to be doing more to prepare for these students so that they are in a position once they get here to understand what they're getting into. So like, for example, financial aid, like when people come from orientation, parents, especially like students of color, parents of color, they don't know what all this stuff means. Like it's, it's overwhelming. Like they become anxious and like, yo, like, no, I'm not, I don't know if I'm prepared for this stuff. And so it's like, I think more funding education needs to go to bridge programs to, and not even just from a high school perspective, like middle school, like that's where I really think it starts. Like mm-hmm. you got to think about middle school, like bullying and like all these different things, emotions, kids are growing up, trying to make sense of the world. Uh, puberty is hitting, like there was a lot of different emotions that, that students are going to. And I think the more that they're able to have access to colleges, not necessarily to come, but to understand like this is a option, one option that I can make. Cause I I will say for sure, I don't think college is for It's not. And so I think us having very clear conversations with um, with data, with data and making conscious decisions and making data accessible to these families, I think is important. And having individuals who are able to have conversations with parents about what that data means um, so that they can make some, con- some, some conscious decisions about how to move forward, I think are some necessary steps. But I don't think people truly understand the value of mentorship or like what that actually means like that's a lot of work it's it's a lot of grassroots obviously work yes. and i think people are so apt to like oh let me just throw some money at the situation and it's going to work out and it's one, one it's like are the right people who you're throwing the money to are they good stewards of the money do they understand what it means to allocate those funds to students of colors or families of color uh, who don't necessarily understand what this means. Right. Like, do they understand the importance of like tracking these students, calling, like just checking in, answering questions, follow up, trust, like, like that's, it's a, it's a whole lot of layers and dynamics that people, um, I think they're aware of, they're not willing to do the work. Yeah. Um, it's, like and you so, said, it's difficult. It's hard. It is hard. It is hard. And I think when people talk about, well, we want to increase our numbers, I'm like, if you want to do that, like, and you're looking at me as a subject matter expert, then you need to allow me the space to do what I know is best. And if administration doesn't want to do that, then it's just going to be another conversation over and over again. And these students, which I try, I've tried, and like to the best of my ability, based upon what I see, like I'm having very honest conversation with parents and, 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 and students about like, yo, UCO may not be the place for you yeah. from a financial perspective. It's not, it has nothing to do with you being prepared. I'm talking about from a debt perspective, like 
you figuring out how you're going to pay for this. Like I'm breaking it down. Um, and, and sometimes those are tough conversations, but I think those are the conversations that people appreciate because like at the end of the day, like you don't want to do more harm like to these people. So, um, I know that was a lot, but I mean, overall, like people just have oh, to be good. willing to invest um, in these type of programs. And from what I've seen, people just aren't. Right. Thank you for saying that. And and I wanted it to be explicit, too, again, because the nonprofit world is looking at, you know, how do we bridge the gap? And so, you know, again, I'm having these conversations because I'm trying to get philanthropy and, and nonprofits and everybody should be working together. But I think sometimes nonprofits don't necessarily they think they're doing one thing right oh we're just helping send kids to college okay but there's this there's this whole process um between preparing them and then once they get get there you know fully supporting them so i think part of and part of that is like knowing the theoretical like language like methodological language like people have to understand like as a people like where people color come from what we experience like Mm -hmm. When you're able to like, and it's not even about being empathetic. Like when you are a true co-conspirator, like Bettina says, like it's some stuff like you have to go through as a co-conspirator to understand before you can make any decision about the lives of people. Like I see so many people making decisions upon what they feel is best, not like being privy or like not understanding like like what's being written out there. Like I can't make conscious decisions without like reading some, some, some stuff or asking questions. Like that's just, you doing that is just being very ignorant. So I think really people have to understand like, and another thing, like put people of color in these positions, like to make these, <laughs> like that. to make these decisions. Say like that. like we, we, we're, we've been doing the work. Like we know what to do. We we know what makes students tick. And even for students that we come in contact with um, who are telling us these things about their experiences, we're listening and we're crystallizing this experience so that we can make an even better mentoring program or just a space for them to engage. So like we have, we have this certain type of love that sometimes is indescribable. Yeah. And you just have to experience it under and learn to understand um, that, yo, we know what we do with yeah. like we, we, we black girl magic. We, yeah. we, we black boy magic. Like we just we just got it. Like it's nothing to like to, to, to hate on. It's more so like like embrace the skill set, the gifts that we have. And when you do that, you'll see different results. Absolutely. Thank you. So I want to I can't forget because I want to talk about your project I feel like we're already vibing on the college access piece and the college retention piece but I really want to add to talk about your project the invisible man I feel like or invisible man I feel like this is this is an opportunity for English teachers so English teachers I want you to pay close attention to what's happening what he's about to say right now because this is critical and key to the classroom. So tell us about your project, The Invisible Man, how it all came together and, and any, you know, jewels that you can drop in there for English teachers wanting to do work like this. Hook us yeah. up. Okay. So I finished the dissertation last year and I was doing my due diligence, even though I didn't necessarily want to be um, at the time 
in the academy. So I was applying for jobs and applying for like 15 jobs. Didn't hear back from none of them. And so um, December 2018, I stopped working at, at the University of Central Oklahoma to finish my degree. So told a wife, look, this is the plan. At the beginning of the semester, this is the plan. What do you think? Got some money saved to the side. Give me six months. I'll finish the program and I'll find a job. She said, let's do it. So quit the job, um, finish the program uh, next spring. During that time, one of my, my homies, uh, Brandon Odom, works for the George Kaiser Family Foundation. Okay. Nonprofit organization in Tulsa. Um, he actually witnessed us um, record and create the dissertation album, too. So he says, yo, man, come to Tulsa. Uh, let's just have lunch. Let's just catch up. I go to Tulsa. I really didn't want to go because, like, those are my writing days. Like, okay. I don't miss a day. Like, if I'm taking, like, if I quit my job and my wife is depending on me and my son, like, I'm going, I'm going 100 miles per hour to finish this degree. You got focus. I, I focus, like, for real, for real. So I go to Tulsa uh, reluctantly, and then we're sitting down, we're eating, and then, boom, his boss comes into the room. Uh, his name is Stan Dole. Stan comes in the room. Like, it was just random. Just come in the room, and my homie introduces me to Stanton. Stanton starts to learn about my work in student affairs, programming, race inclusion work, retention work, um, and then the dissertation, and the dissertation album. Dissertation album, what is, what is this all about? So I'm explaining about, like, you know, these anti-Black experiences Black males face on these historically white campuses and creating an album to, like, bring awareness to those things as well as like how they process it. And he's like, do you have any songs? I'm like, okay, play a song. And he's like, do you have any like videos? Like play a video. And I'm like, man, just this white, this random white guy just like excited about like some, some my work. It's cool, but I'm like, we're, like, I don't know where this is going. So I leave Tulsa, I'm like, okay, cool. Great to connect with you and your boss. I get back on the, the road because Tulsa to Oklahoma City is like an hour and a half away. And I remember like crying, like in tears because I was like, man, I hadn't found a job at the time. And it's like April, like graduation is around the corner. Right. And the wife ain't really saying nothing, but I could, you know, you just can feel it's like tension. Yeah. So I'm just like, man, I'm like having a conversation with God. Like, like he my homie, like, yo, what are we doing? Like, I need to find some, something, like something that I feel like is, is for me. And then I remember just saying like, you know, wherever you want me to be, that's where I'm going. Tulsa was never on the radar, ever. So I don't get back, this is in the car. I don't get to my house, to my door, I get a call. And his stand door was like, yo, can you come back to Tulsa? It's like, okay. Week later, I go back to Tulsa. And he's like, yo, we want you to be the manager of education, diversity outreach for Woody Guthrie and the Bob Dylan Center. Wow. So me being who I am, I'm like, okay, this is a museum world. 
This is Woody Guthrie, folk music. This is Bob Dylan. And so I just asked, I was like, yo, what does a 30-year-old hip-hop scholar have to do with Woody Guthrie and Bob Dylan Center? And um, so they told me, it was really like an interview question to them. So they answered the question. I was like, okay, I'm rocking with it. And so they told me about the jobs. And then I was like, you know, I started thinking about my research. And I was like, man, I don't want to waste four years of nothing and not being able to incorporate in my, my new job. And so I was like, hey, I got a non-negotiable. I'm like, they were like, okay. I said, what are y'all doing for 2021? And they were like, well, what do you mean? I was like, well, the 100-year commemoration of Black Wall Street is coming around the corner. Say that. Um, I mean, this is a this is a very credible like nonprofit organization mm-hmm. that you know their mission is to eradicate you know generational poverty. And I was just very curious, like what they were doing as an organization uh, to to help with that. So right. they didn't have anything, and so I was like. And I just listened to Revenge of the Dreamers. It dropped maybe a couple months earlier. I saw the documentary with J. Cole and his crew. And I'm just like, yo, like this is this is dope. Like, this is dope. That, you know, 10 days they in the studio and they were making music. So I was like, yo, let me executive produce a compilation hip hop album in commemoration of Black Wall Street. I said, we'll do an album, documentary, curriculum development. Um, and develop a podcast. And they agreed to it. I was like, where do I sign? So I say that to say. That's beautiful. Uh, Invisible, yeah, Invisible Man was actually an idea that turned into a social experiment to prepare for Fire in Little Africa. So Fire in Little Africa has 60 artists from all Oklahoma artists, uh, from Oklahoma City, Tulsa, and Lawton. Um, poets, producers, engineers, singers. Um, and for five days, we recorded um, 150 songs. Wow. Um, in five, commemor- days. five days. Um, and so prior to that, I was like, man, I really want to see how people work in the studio. Like, are egos going to be involved? Like, is it going to be a me thing? Like, I just had so many like anxious thoughts. And I needed to see it before we got ready for Final Little Africa. And so I'd already been making these beats on the side. And I been I had been listening to them every day, like constantly. And I was like, man, I wanna I wanna come out with an album and use these beats. And I was like, man, I really wanna connect it to some Oklahoma history. And I mean, even though I'm from Texas, like I've been in Oklahoma for over 10 years, I was like, I'm, I'm Oklahoma now. So like, how do I pay respect to Oklahoma history? My, my uh, literature review talked a lot about Oklahoma history. And I was like, I just, I'm trying to figure it out. And so I'm just going through ideas. And I'm like, Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison, like Oklahoma City, Eastside Oklahoma City, Douglas High School, yes. Black School. And I'm like, yo, Invisible Man. It just kept clicking. And I was like, man, I started playing with like the title. And I was like, man, what if I put a parentheses around the I and the N? And then I just kind of low-key developed like a research question. And I was like, how do I make the invisible visible? That's what I was thinking about. So like, 
from people of color, sometimes we just feel like no one takes us serious. Mm-hmm. Like the work that we do doesn't be, it doesn't, we're not acknowledged or like people don't really understand the magnitude of the work that we're doing. And then I was thinking about, even for me, like, like I said, I've reached this pinnacle and yet I still feel like I'm at the bottom of the totem pole. Um, and even from a hip hop perspective, when people say Oklahoma hip hop, they're like, Oklahoma hip hop, like, man, get out of here. And I was like, so from the production to the skits, the transitions, the lyrics, I was like, man, how can we make the invisible visible? Because I was like, I knew for a fact that we had some talent that just needed a platform. But I, even then, I was like, how do I have a conversation with the book of Invisible Man? Like, if if Rob Ellison was to listen to this album, like, what would he say? And actually, I posed a question to one of my homies, and he was like, I think Ralph Ellison would say, I need to go read my book again. Wow. And so it was going to just, so yeah, wait, so let, one me just, these, let me just hit pause for English teachers. I just want to make sure y'all listening to this. I don't, I don't know how I'm going to emphasize this in the notes <laughs> of the podcast, but listening to you talk about processing the book through hip hop, talking to the author. I mean, these are all things that English teachers would just die to have students do. And one of the first things y'all realize is I need to reread, which is what we tell students all the time, right? Yep. To really get that level, that layer and that level of meaning. So again, English teachers, this is this is a master class. So just keep listening. <laughs> yeah. And so I would um and even to, to to make it even more organic, I didn't even read the book until after the album was done. Um so I literally just kind of like Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison, and I was really trusting the process of the album. So I, I talk a lot about like the epistemology of listening with uh, Dr. Hendry from LSU and how she talks about this sacred political act of trust. And that's how I've approached not only my scholarship, but also my music too. It's like, let me make it and then let me make sense of it after the fact. And then let me crystallize it with like literature to make, make sense of it, like truly make sense of it. Cause then for me, that's like when I feel like I can not necessarily debate, but I can back anything that I've developed or, or created because I've done the work. And so like, it's this quote in the book where he says, uh, I've illuminated the blackness of my invisibility and vice versa. And so I play the, the invisible music of my isolation. Wow. Um, he, he also says the last statement doesn't seem just real, does it? But it is. Mm-hmm. You hear this music simply because music is heard and seldom seen except by musicians. And then he says, could this compulsion, compulsion to put invisibility down in black and white be thus an urge to make music of invisibility? I heard that I was like, that's, I'm trying to make invisible music. Like I'm trying to, I'm trying to illuminate like both my blackness and my invisibility. Mm-hmm. Um, for people to truly understand where I'm coming from, and once I once I heard that, and I, once I heard the album, what's crazy is I was so so I made all the production except for one track. I picked the artists; they knew the name of the album, but I didn't give them any direction on what to write. Mm. 
And what happened was, like, I was so focused on making sure that the artists, which I, I look at as, like, students, like, in a mentoring program, I look at the artists the same way. Like, I was so adamant about them speaking their truth that what happened is, like, they were telling my story. Um, it was, like, real trippy. Like, I, I can literally listen to every song and I can equate it to an experience that I've had in my own life. So it, it just felt like they were like either following me or it was just one of those very organic things where like blackness is not monolithic, but mm -hmm. like there's so many different things that we can take from each other that it, really helps us to heal. So Right. And also just this idea that that music like literature is universal, speaks to a universal experience. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, like. The, the album is, is is classical music, it's gospel. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, the first, the intro is five minutes of just sound. Like there's, there's no bars, there's no singing. It's a, it's a piano and a violin. And it's a mashup between, um, I feel like a motherless child and I'm going up yonder. What 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 is equating to is when we feel invisible, we feel like a motherless child, like mm -hmm. no one really wants to love us or protect us. And so it even gets to a point where some people feel like, you know, I'd rather just just be dead and, and live with God and go up yonder and be with him. Cause at least I know like he's gonna protect me, he's gonna mm -hmm. love me. Um so yeah, like there, there's like blackness is so complex. And I think it just goes back to our previous conversation. It's so complex that people try to, you know, make this simplify one, one size fits all mentoring program. And it's, it's, it's so many layers, like from one individual with so many layers, imagine like so many, you know, black and brown kids, folks who are trying to make sense of this world during a pandemic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of layers. It's a lot of emotions, sad, it's, it's happy. It's like, it, it begs the question, like how do black and brown people find joy and peace and happiness, mm -hmm. even when like the, the world is against us. And it's just like some stuff you just, you just can't, you can't touch. It's, it's, it's just, it's just, it's just the beauty of, 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 of blackness and, and truly just trying to make sense of the world. So yeah, Invisible Man is is something that I definitely believe that people, it will resonate with people. Um, and I think it's it's also showing my growth as a scholar. I think the critique that I've had from myself and from others is that when we, when we made the album for the dissertation is that it was focused primarily from like a heterosexual lens. Mm. And so, um, Going into Invisible Man, I was like, you know, how do I provide a space where all black and brown folks like feel free, regardless of sexual orientation? And I think like this one really, really, really relates to like a lot of different experiences, a lot of layers that I, I feel like hip hop is not addressing like by any means. Right. Absolutely not. So yeah, like it's, I'm, 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 I'm definitely excited. I think it's. Uh, I can't wait. And when does it drop? When does the the 
it, it drops it drops May 15th. May 15th. Um, so we might have to drop the podcast around the same time. But but May 13th, May 13th, there's a, a listening party. It's free event. So it's gonna be on Zoom. I'm gonna share my screen, ask people to, to wear their headphones. I've tested it out already. So like it sounds exactly how it's supposed to be. You can hear it in your headphones and I think the, the thing that I was truly focused on, we recorded the album in two days. We mixed and mastered it for three months though. Yeah. Yeah. That's the work. That's that that's the work. That's the get that sound that's right. The, that's the dissertation where you my chair and I'm writing and you give me feedback. Literally every song, there's sixteen tracks. Every track had at least ten to fifteen revisions before we pick the final master version of each track. Again, English teachers, this is a master, this is a master class. It's a master, like for for real, for real, because like we talk about, so I'm wearing a certain frequency. It's it's, it's a prime example. Yeah. Certain frequencies where you can hear certain sounds that you normally wouldn't hear. And I think that's the same thing with like people of color is like, when you take the time to truly find the frequency to where like they can like be themselves, you'll you'll hear things. It'll resonate with you different. Um, I literally feel every time I hear it, I feel like I can touch the sounds. I'll, I'll listen to a track and I'll be like, I'm just gonna focus on the samples today. And then you play it again, like I'm gonna focus on the drums. And then you play it again, I'm gonna focus on the lyrics. And you feel like you can touch every little detail. And so I just, I'm just grateful for the, for the process um, that is, is working out. And on top of that, it's connected to like literacy, which, cause I wanted to get to a point where like a student is listening to this and they're like, Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison. I'm sliding with all the evidence. They're like, okay, who is, who is Ralph Ellison? Who, what is Invisible Man? Like, why is this album called Invisible Man? And then teachers can go in and start reading it, and then they start reading the, 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 the prologue. They don't even read the, read the intro. They just read the prologue. They be like, oh, so he stole electric? Like, he really stole electric just to, just to write this book? Man, and that's hip-hop. Didn't we steal electric to create? <laughs> Like he over here, you know, smoking a reefer and listening to Louis Armstrong and like yeah. making sense of this of this world that he was living in in Harlem. Um, like, yeah, yeah it's, it's it's so so many layers, so many approaches that that educators can take with it. Yeah, um, it's it's not censored. Um, I think obviously I'll probably have to find a make an edited version, but overall, like, it's authentic. It's what students experience. Yeah. And I, I, I would love to be in a classroom space to have a conversation with some students about the wordplay, the skits, like the importance of space and place and time, temporality, like all this stuff. It's just. Well, we, I'll tell you this. We're going we gonna to invite you out when this pandemic <laughs> is over. We're going to bring you out to California and we're going to do, we're going to workshop with Iman. Well, Youth Mentoring Action Network definitely wants this experience. So we're going to bring you out here to Cali and get that work. Let's do it. Let's do it.
All right, so I got one more question for you before we end our interview. Man, I feel like we could go for another hour. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm here. In your freedom dream, what does the future of youth work look like? Wow. Um, freedom dream look Man, that's a that's a that's a tough question. It's a tough question because it's kind of like asking a question like, "What is a world with like without anti-blackness?" It's like you can't really can't really grasp it. But I think that like that's the beauty of when I use that word, the beauty of the pandemic because it's it's making us wrestle with these questions. Um, I think for me, it's a uh, is access and space. So, and what I mean by space is like allowing the students to tell us what a, a space looks like for them to engage in this type of work. Like we have the expertise, we have the experiences, we know, you know, what needs to be discussed in these classes from a literature perspective and then activities, but like for, for, for the students, like, like what, what do they want? And how do we create <clears throat> a space that fulfills that promise? I think, I think what's frustrating for people like you and me is that if we had the funds and the access to do a lot of the stuff, we wouldn't have to work as hard. Like it's, I feel like we use so much time with just thinking and then actually doing yeah, yeah, it's very taxing. Like we have to think so much because we have to think about like, how do we just wiggle through this to get what we need, the resources, and it's very taxing. So for me, it's like, how do I put the agency in the hands of the students to where they're telling us like, these are the things that we need to be successful based upon our environment and then having the capital to support those needs in a very like holistic way, like a very big scale way, not just, hey, we're taking this one little piece. It's like, no, like, how do we spread it? And then how do we, you know, come back and assess certain things? But overall, it's like, how do we, how do we put the power in the hands of the students? Because like, man, they have so much creativity and innovation and they're thinking about things in ways that I'm not. And I think a lot of a lot of people like, you know, this this dissertation album is dope. Like it's it's somebody I've never seen before. But I, when I look at my son who's three, and I look like and I look at how he's a rebel and how like he really don't take <laughs> nothing from nobody. You know, I'm seeing myself, but I'm also seeing that, you know, I wasn't as comfortable with my own skin until I was 30 years old. Like he's three and he's like, I'm smart. I am kind. I am loved. I am black. I can, I will. Like these are things that he says every day. Mm -hmm. I'm like, man, I wasn't saying that at three. Right. Like, like he's about to change the whole trajectory. Like I'm not worried about me. I'm, I'm looking like, yo, he, 
he up next. He got next. Like, but that just brings me so much joy. But I'm also recognizing that there's going to become a time where he's going to have some ideas at five, at six, seven. And I need to be able to listen to those things because he's pretty much giving me something that I won't get anywhere else. Like he's preparing me for the future. Like he's helping me to like evolve over time. And I think the more that I'm able to just be open and honest and listening and recreate spaces to where it's not within these four walls. It's like, yo, we right. we about to go down the street, we about to go to the park. We about to like classes here, like, but there's also things that helps with access of getting those those kids to those places. Like there's so many different things. I think a lot of things is people working in silos and don't understand that everybody's success is connected to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, reimagine that resources that are for us and by us that have the right people in mind who align with the importance of value, impact, and legacy. So I don't value you, Dr. Tory, because um, you're a dope scholar and that you got some, some fire, a fire book or that you got a, a fire mentoring program. I don't even value you because you have dope ideas. I value you because when I was at my lowest point and you didn't know who I was, like you put your arms around me um, and you told me that I was going to be okay, that I was going to make it. That is the same type of race that we have to provide to our students who are going to make mistakes, um, who, who are not in a world that allows them to make, make, make these mistakes. But we are like the saving grace for them. That ultimately is going to create impact uh, to where that they're going to see the world different. And they're going to understand that their mistakes is not the end and that they have people that they can talk to, whether it's people like us or even like their peers, that ultimately develops this new legacy that allows them to understand the literature, the history, where they come from, the experiences, being exposed to different things, understanding how white supremacy works, like the importance of knowing themselves, knowing their elected officials, holding their officials accountable. Um, and if they're not doing what they need to do, finding ways to get them the hell up out of there. Yeah. Like, yeah. all of this is important. And I think once we have curriculum that is speaking to those different things, that mentoring programs like yours is already doing, and people start taking that serious, I think that allows us to, like, truly reimagine um, what that looks like. I mean, obviously money is involved, uh, but I think the money is coming. Um, and so, and so going back to our conversation is I could see a situation where like, you know, increase is coming and I want to be able to support the work that you're doing. So when you call me, you're like, y'all got this dope idea. I'm like, I ain't even tripping on it. How much you need? Like we could talk to the account later, like whatever, like 15, 20, 50,000, because I understand the importance of value relationships is the new currency like our students are our future. Mm-hmm. And if we're not investing in them, then like, what's the point? So um, 
I know that was a long winded. That was beautiful. Answer, but like that's just that was beautiful. But the but the beauty of it is, hip hop has allowed me to to see it in that type of way. Mm. So like when I was doing my program, I'm like I'm just trying to get this degree and move on with my life, but not knowing like the experiences, the good, bad, like not having a committee, like all of that, like built me to have these type of conversations. Like I wouldn't be on this podcast if it wasn't for those experiences. And students and teachers need to hear that. To be like, yo, like anything is is possible. <laughs> for real, for real. So um, yeah, I'm just I'm just grateful for it all. Thank you. Thank you so much for just taking time to interview with us. Folks, you've been listening to Dr. View. Dr. DJ View, definitely check out the notes on the episode. We're going to have links to Invisible Man Project and his website. The bio is going to be there, the whole nine. So definitely check that out. Also know that there is a link on this site about joining our community called Reimagining Youth Work, where we are just gathering around to provide resources and support for one another. Thank y'all. And we will be back in two weeks with another episode of Reimagining Youth Work.